Success breeds success. So therefore, the more success you have, the more confidence you have. And the risk you'll take because you understand them more. And then how do you lay off risk? I mean, how do you do projects like this, survive, you know, because, and, and, you know, it's not like you don't make mistakes. You'll learn all the time. It's how you deal with those mistakes, how fast you move, and then the creativity you use in solving the problems that you didn't know about or you, you learn on the job as you grow. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today we have a very special episode, my interview live and in person from high atop Hudson Yards on March 31st with Stephen Ross, the founder and chairman of the Related Companies. Stephen needs no introduction to our listeners given his work at Related. However, the breadth of his activities, on which we only get to scratch the surface in the interview, is really what seems to drive him now that he's in his 80s and obviously not slowing down in terms of aspiration, goals of impact, and as we discuss on the podcast, loving to compete. To give you some headlines, in addition to Related, where he continues to be the chair, Stephen is the majority owner of the Miami Dolphins. He is a major benefactor of the University of Michigan, where the Ross School of Business bears his name. He founded the World Resources Institute Ross Center for Cities in 2014. He's the founder of the RSE Venture Fund, and he's the founder of RISE, a foundation created in 2015 to harness the unifying power of sport to end racism and champion social justice. Among his many passion projects, Stephen is also now a key driver behind major development activity in downtown Detroit, which we will talk about on the show. As I said, Stephen is not letting up on his activities. You all know that Leading Voices is your gift to me with the opportunity to do these interviews. Together, we've met legendary household names in the real estate business like today's conversation with Stephen, with Sam Zell, Gerald Hines, Art Gensler, Ned Speaker, Ron Terwilliger, Owen Thomas, and others. Each of these conversations were actually live and in person, and I will admit to some stage fright for each. But to tell you the truth, I get equal juice and excitement from the non-household names. Recently, people like Roseanne Haggerty, Doug Yearly, Marshall Boyd and Julia Boyd Corso, Greg Bates and Bob DeWitt, all the way to our podcast on the Yimby movement with Laura Foote, also live and in person a few months back. I find that I gain wisdom from all of these conversations, and that's my hope for you too. Terra Search Partners is now a week or two into our merger with the global talent solutions firm ZRG, where we're helping to build out their real estate practice globally. We talk a lot on Leading Voices about the power of business platform, and I did not realize until we started this integration with ZRG that I've been talking about the power of platform with my guests on Leading Voices while I've sat at a tiny, tiny firm. ZRG, which is PE-backed, does have the power of scale with fairly amazing technology, partners across the globe, and complementary practices outside of executive search and interim placement, culture management, and business strategy. So now in my business, I get the opportunity to walk the talk of a scaled business platform and all that it can bring. Alongside of the bespoke wisdom that we've always brought to the table, all in service to our clients. It's really exciting and I'll look forward to sharing more. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Stephen. This is definitely one to share with your friends and colleagues. 
As always, if you're enjoying the show, please follow us on your favorite podcast app. Please rate us and feel free to connect with me with ideas for guests and other ideas for the show at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Please enjoy the conversation with Stephen Ross. So I'm going to say three or four things, Stephen. I'm going to say Hudson Yards, Time Warner, Dolphins, Affordable Housing, and Go Blue. Take it from here. What do you want to talk about? Anything you want. You you have so many (laughs) things that you do in your world and your life, and they're all so different. So I'm wondering how you balance them, prioritize them, and what you bring to them that's uniquely you and your leadership. Well, I mean... I like to make sure I'm never bored. <laughs> You're definitely and, and never so, bored. And so there's always something that has my attention at that point in time, uh-huh. something that's challenging. I mean, I love challenges. So yeah. I think probably that's one reason why I've grown the company and diversified it the way I am, uh, the way it has grown. And also I'm involved in a lot of kind of diversified activities. Mm-hmm. And I love working and solving challenges. That's what I live for. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the primary reason why I'm involved in so many different things and I get bored easily. That's a fair deal. Is real estate the wellspring from which all of those activities come? Because that's where you made your mark. Yeah, well, you know, any place where you kind of make your mark and it gives you the assets, if you will, mm-hmm. to go ahead and do different things and allows you the time to do other things, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I was first preoccupied when I first started because I had nothing with I had to make a living yeah. and growing and building the company. Mm-hmm. And then once I had the capital that I could go outside of that, I looked at other activities and things that interested me. And then at the same time, they've all done pretty well. So, you know, I think probably the next impact I'll really have will be in philanthropy where I give it away. <laughs> you know, I give it back. But, you know, that, that's a lot of fun as well. Yeah. And very rewarding. Mm-hmm. So I, I have so many things to ask you about, but let's, we're going to bounce around subjects. So we're sitting in Hudson Yards. We're sitting at a place that didn't exist two years ago. And I was in your office at the Time Warner Center 15 years ago, and that hadn't existed five years before that. How does that feel? And these aren't just buildings, they're places. So talk about that. Well, I mean, I think, you know, the dream of every real estate developer, or at least myself. Yeah was to do something that was impactful uh-huh. and do impactful projects. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I started off doing affordable housing. Right. And then from there, went into market rate housing, retail, office buildings, hotels, and now mixed use projects. Right. So the company, you know, this is over a long span. It didn't sure happen is. overnight. Yeah. You know, I've been in business now for, uh, in the real estate business for 51 years. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I kind of started when I was, about 30, you know, so it's been a long journey, but it's, you know, it's been one that's continued to grow uh-huh. and diversify. Uh-huh. And so, uh, and the challenges have become greater. Yeah. We're going to come back to that 30 year arc of a career. When you started, you would not have imagined building a district like Hudson Yards. You wouldn't have imagined building a corner like Lincoln Center or Time Warner. I'm just thinking, what's, what was the leap that got to those things versus the leap from building buildings? And then the skill set involved in that leap. Well, I mean, once, you know, we went from and diversified from resident, affordable housing to market rate housing yeah. to office buildings and retail. I mean, that took time. I enjoyed learning new things. And I would, you know, it's a question of working together with people, bringing the best and the brightest together. Mm-hmm. 
and working together, building a team, and then I went on to the next area. But I, it was easier to follow something if you've done it before. So I was involved in, in every aspect of what we've done initially right. and then moved on to doing other things and leading the way in, into different sectors you know, of real estate. Right. So, I mean, I think it's easier to grow if you've done it yourself. Mm-hmm. And so in every sector, the initial buildings, I was involved in doing that. Right. And was able to, therefore, uh, understand the problems and issues that arise with the other things that were being built, even though I wasn't involved on a day-to-day basis. Uh-huh. And uh, what I had told my people that I was working with you know, you give them a lot of leeway. You don't micromanage people. Right. But I said, if you got a problem, I have to be the first to know. And I want to know what your problems are. Right. But in the interim, I gave them a lot of leeway. I had worked with them. I knew what their capabilities were. And they knew what I was looking for. And, you know, the simple thing is, whatever we did, we wanted to be best in class. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't trying to just to do something. It was really to do a better job than anybody else. And that's always been the mantra of really this company uh-huh. is that, you know, we want to be first movers and we take risks or we'll look at things a little differently right. outside the box, but that I want to know and I want to be involved. Uh-huh. So let's think about that for a second. I, I keep thinking that Time Warner Center was a leap. You done, and I'm going to get this imprecise, but you had done stuff before. You built buildings before, but here you built an area that needed that level of mixed use, and that's a skill that a Captain Kirk skill. No man had gone there before precisely. Well, I mean, I brought in uh, Ken Himmel at that point in time, uh-huh. who had built mixed use developments. No one had ever put it all in one building, right? To the extent of the uses that we put into Time Warner, right? Learned a lot. Yeah. It was a good location. I learned how complex it is in trying to do so many uses in one building. Right. And I haven't done a lot of those since. I mean, they have the risks and they don't work everywhere. New York City is, you know, when you have a market that oftentimes as you enter it, you don't know how high high is, you know. Uh, a rising market can cover a lot of sins, if you will. Yes. <laughs> you know, so we were successful. That was probably the one project that I was like the project manager of. I probably got the most amount of really uh, enjoyment out of really being that involved project. in. Yeah. And it's interesting. I, I'm thinking of your word best in class. I'm also thinking that you guys are long-term holders. So the goal to be best in class to be long-term holders, and then for you, the CEO, to be as involved as a project manager in the conceptualization of something that difficult uh, learns lessons that then you can repeat as a company. Yes, I mean, absolutely. But it also, when you're, you know, when you have, when you're on top and you're the chief executive, uh-huh. it's having done things like that, you know what to anticipate and what to look for. Uh-huh. And so the learning you know, curve is a lot less even though you haven't done it before. Interesting. So then talk about the organization versus you and the learned muscle memory of a team and then how that team has the expertise where you could be pretty confident you could do a Hudson Yards without screwing it up. Well, you never never do a project like Hudson Yards and say you're not going to screw it up. We're going to get there in a minute. I I mean, you know, I mean, I think... You know, and success breeds success. Uh-huh. So therefore, the more success you have, the more confidence you have. Right. 
and the risk you'll take because you understand them more. Uh And then how do you lay off risk? I mean, how do you do projects like this? Mm -hmm. Survive, Uh you know, because, and, and, you know, it's not like you don't make mistakes. You'll learn all the time. Right. It's how you deal with those mistakes, how fast you move, Mm -hmm. and then the creativity you use in solving the problems Mm -hmm. that you didn't know about or you, you learn on the job as you grow. Let's pick that one up here because we're in Hudson Yards and Hudson Yards was delivered, not your mistake, but the world's mistake was delivered right into COVID. Well, that's a problem. I mean, mean, you know, and not all of the buildings will have the success that we anticipated. Uh Certainly, I mean, when we first entered the job, we thought we'd make all our money on the residential and the retail Uh and hope we'd break even in office because off the office market was weak at the time we did it right the bottom line is what, what's happened we made all our money in the office really and let's go you're making all your money in the office because that's the sector that confuses us the most in our industry except maybe brand new spanking wonderful office today is the product type that matters well we saw the office you know the office market was weak so we saw that if we could break even on the office, mm-hmm. that the size and scope of that would allow us to attract the uh, retail tenants, which we ended up getting uh, Neiman Marcus, mm-hmm. which was a real coup at the time. Right. They were the leading department store in the country, and for them to open up in Manhattan with their first store and show they saw what tenants we were attracting. Mm-hmm. So the retail, and having that as a co-tenancy with, with other retailers, mm-hmm. they were attracted mm-hmm. to Hudson Yards. Mm-hmm. Then we knew if we had the retail with those type of tenants, we'd be able to sell the uh, condos. And that's what we thought would be very successful. And then a hotel would be, you know, with the size and scope of this, it would need a hotel. And also we were then growing Equinox at the same time Mm -hmm. and saw that as an opportunity to put our first hotel because we saw... Equinox Hotel, not Equinox Exercise Studio. Right. And we saw, you know, what was going on with what people were lifestyle and changes in lifestyle Mm -hmm. and felt there was a need and and there was a market for an Equinox Hotel. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that was our rationale. Then you have the pandemic. Yeah, what happened? The office, we had leased all the office space. I mean, what was really, I didn't uh, really anticipate we'd be as successful in the office. But basically, you know, we really recognized and sold it that one, the location, this is where young people wanted to be, mm-hmm. technology, and what firms were looking for, for new buildings because the obsolescence of all the existing, or most of the existing office stock in New York and people wanting to be here. So we sold it as a place where companies survive if they're able to recruit talent. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Hudson and Chelsea was an area where young people wanted to be, it was a place in the city that could really grow, that still had opportunity in it. We sold it, uh, this is what corporations needed to a place that they should be mm-hmm. with their offices to attract the kind of talent. Mm-hmm. So I saw, I believe that the CEOs of the companies that we attracted and the private equity firms and all that saw this as a place that really 
they could bring everything together and have modern office space in a different environment. COVID has, has even made that more emphatic, you know, and, and, and we were right in our thinking. And so right. this is probably the most coveted space, Hudson Yards, in New York City. So their office is doing well. We're still building offices and uh, we get the highest rents in the city and it's the location of choice. There's still people who still want the Upper East Side, but we're certainly doing, holding our own or doing, you know, probably a little better than that. I bet you are for a new office. Was it mostly leased before COVID or did most of that leasing happen during and after COVID? Mostly uh, before COVID. And it's still continuing. It's still continuing. Because then, don't forget, then after COVID, we had the bankruptcy of Neiman Marcus. They moved out, you know, of that space. We're converting that to office now, which has worked out well because the retail market, that whole industry totally changed overnight. Mm -hmm. So we had a huge loss from our anticipated rents once we had Neiman Marcus and them, you know, uh, leaving or abandoning three floors, which were converting to office with 150,000 square foot floor plates above the retail. And the demand for that has been terrific. So um, that's turned out that'll work out well, you know, in this environment, replacing Neiman Marcus with commercial office space. And uh, condos and rental apartments? Well, the, well, we had condos. Uh, we had some affordable housing, but there was obviously no risks right. to that. That filled up 100%. But the condos, uh, because of, you know, COVID and people banning New York at that point in time, no one working down here and the clock is ticking on completed buildings, right. our sales weren't, you know, weren't there. So we ate up and went well beyond all the interest accruals that we had set How set much up. does that come back? So, I mean, it, it's, it's selling now, but our office space is now just probably at 40% now, but it's, and that's only in the last month. Mm-hmm. But we probably were- 40% people showing up. Showing up here, now. right. Overall, the project's very successful because of the office. Wow. And, and, the opposite of what one would have expected. And that's the one part we said, hey, if we just break even on the office to bring people here, right. that was our initial thought. So it shows you how you can enter a job, and this is what happens when you do a long-term project, right. how markets can change. Mm-hmm. You know, and you've got to be flexible and adaptable, see it, and then move with it. You know? So um, you know, also, we had the observation deck. We had paid for that. There was no people to come or see it. So, I mean... It's been fraught with all kinds of problems. But at the same time, Hudson Yards is probably the premier location in New York. Uh-huh. And it will rebound. And we're still getting a lot of interest from office tenants here. Uh-huh. You know, the question is, now that they're moving forward, what will happen with the Western Yards? Uh-huh. You know, and today, but construction costs have escalated so great. So we're the Western Yards is the other half of Hudson Yards that isn't yet built. Yeah, we bought additional land, so it's it, it's not exactly half of it, but it's probably another six and a half million square feet. Uh-huh. Whereas today we have probably uh, twelve, thirteen million square feet. Right. What you do know is this is different than your economics, but what you do know is in five, ten years, this will be an established part of the city that will be incredibly successful and a draw and it will anchor this end of the city as a reality you know that's the case and you will have built oh, it. oh, oh there's no question about it i yeah. mean i mean this would be like the center of the city if you will i, I think we, it will we believe you know just where all the trends are and everything 
I had dinner with a New Yorker last night who'd never been on the High Line. I'm from San Francisco, but I've now been on it six or seven times. I did this morning. I went to Little Island, which is like really cool. Right. Like stuff's happening and it's not going to go away. Yeah. I mean, I, no, I agree. I mean, New York's changing. New York will continue to change. I think you see a lot of people leaving New York, but you have a lot of tech companies coming here. So it's going to be a, kind of a different city. But certainly New York is New York, and everybody has written it off so many times, and they'll probably continue to write it off, but it'll certainly survive and do well. It'll just be a little different than it was in the past. I it will continue to evolve, and we talk about this in the podcast a lot because during COVID, we were wondering, okay, is, is it going to die? Our city's going to die, and urban environments will not die, No, but they will change. And the rhythm of it will change and people have different kinds well, of Well, I mean, there's probably more change occurring. We're in a transition right now. Yeah. You know, our whole country and, and the world is, I mean, what's, what's occurring right now. Right. And so um, it'll be interesting to see where we end up, yeah. you know, as we enter this new, this new world, you know. It's, uh, We're lucky as people in the latter half of our lives and careers to be able to experience this level of change because it's really damn interesting. Yes. I mean, you know, fortunately, I probably won't be here to see where it results in. But I mean, you know, change is occurring at a much faster pace. Yep. So it'll still keep on moving very fast. And But I think you can bet New York will be here and uh, other parts of the city. A lot of New Yorkers are here today. Might not be here, but new people will come in, you yeah. know. So we're going to speed date through this, but we're talking about New York so much, and I think of you intrinsically as a New Yorker, but you're a Michigander. So talk about growing up just a little bit. Talk about the University of Michigan, which I know you care about, Go Blue, and then how you got into this business. Well, yeah, I mean, I grew up, I, uh, for the first 15 years of my life, I spent in Detroit. My parents moved to Florida in freshman year of high school, and then I went back to the University of Michigan. And then when I graduated law school, I got my master's in tax law at NYU. I went back to practice in Detroit, and I had just spent those two years in New York. And I guess I was single, and there was nothing like New York. And uh, I moved back to New York. You know, I didn't, I didn't know anybody then or have any family here, but uh, it certainly turned out to be a very wise move. Good for you. You know, but you don't forget where you come from. Uh -huh. And uh, I've been very active with the University of Michigan throughout the years. And people have wanted me to come back to Detroit. And I saw what happened to Detroit. I mean, I certainly left at the right time. Uh -huh. And it's, you know, 50 years later now. And uh, I think Detroit really has hit bottom. And I see an opportunity in Detroit in the future. And uh, so we're working on a very large project that will really, I think, do an awful lot and bring Detroit really a new renaissance in Detroit, if you will. Mixed use like this? What's the Yes, uh, right in the heart of downtown. Uh -huh. I mean, it won't have the same density, but it'll still be pretty dense because it is downtown. How much it's will you use old buildings? How much will be all new? Most of it will be new. I mean, we're partnering with the uh, LH organization that uh -huh. owns the, the Little Caesars Pizza as well as Detroit Tigers and Detroit Red Wings. And they had assembled over 300 acres of land downtown adjacent to it, this, like parking lots today. There are a few old buildings that will rehab, but we're going to be bringing to Detroit the University of Michigan Innovation Center, which will be a new school for the University of Michigan that will act as a catalyst. It's a graduate school dealing 
with business, engineering, computer science, information science, law, all in one school, much like Cornell Tech here is in New York. Yep. And so uh, I'm bringing that to the uh, to Detroit. Uh, it's been approved by the University of Michigan. Uh-huh. I'm giving the lead gift, and that'll act as a catalyst to the development of office buildings, retail, hotels, and residential, which will really act as a total catalyst in bringing Detroit back. Young people want to be in Detroit. It's kind of a city that where young people today are really mission-driven, mm-hmm. and they understand the importance of Detroit, what a great city it was to this country. And um, it was really the heart of the interstate highway system in the Great Lakes. And I think that corporations are now seeing the skill set that comes out of the University of Michigan, where they're looking for talent and where young people want to be and uh, and the cost of living. And I think everything, the stars are starting to align mm-hmm. that, you know, you, when you mention it to most people, they think you're nuts. But I think in the corporations we've talked to, right. um, there's a lot of interest. And I think you'll see over the next couple of years, Detroit make a real comeback and it'll be the surprise of the country. The Oichens has assembled these over 300 acres they right. had and it's just you know it's ready to go and so and it's in the right part of detroit it's it's got everything you'd ever want i mean all the sport venues right. are within two blocks of each other all yep. four major teams all the cultural venues mm-hmm. are all within two blocks mm-hmm. so everything is, and it's all downtown so you come to new york you're a lawyer you started bear stearns I started with a smaller firm, Laird, and then went okay. to Bear Stearns. Okay, and then what happened? How did you get from there to real estate? Well, I got fired. That's really important. <laughs> so, Why did you get fired? What did, what did you do? Well, the person I was working with uh, had a great inferiority complex, and I guess, you know, you made it such that uh, if you didn't listen to him and uh-huh. uh, you didn't have a, a role, and it didn't work out. Yeah. And so... Uh, you know, I looked around, uh, I had a, went to Bear Stearns, that was at Bear Stearns. The, f- the first firm really kind of was a great firm with young guys doing exciting things, but they had financial problems. Actually, the firm kind of disbanded uh, within a month after I left. Okay. My leaving had nothing to do with that. I was a young associate. Right. But it was back by the DuPonts, and it was... It was a very exciting place to be, uh-huh. but when you put all young people with no experience together, or very little, limited experience, you need real leadership to stay together, and yeah. they couldn't really pull it together. So uh, anyway, I got fired from Bear Stearns, and I looked at it and said, hey, I can't get, no one's going to hire me. And what are my strengths? Where are the greatest opportunities? Uh-huh. And kind of wrote a business plan for a real estate company. And to do low-income housing. Yes, to start doing affordable housing, but I wanted, it was always the idea that that would be the basis of something. Uh-huh. And um, Why so, did you start there? Because one, I had no capital. I knew the government programs. I'd studied that, and there was a tremendous amount of government programs. They had just passed all the uh, Johnson Great Society programs. Right. Um, there was a great need in the country for affordable housing, which the country really wasn't paying a lot of attention to until these programs were passed. And, um, you know, in those days, there were business cycles. There were a lot more of them and a lot more often. Uh, So it's a question, how do you really survive during all these business cycles? So I had to, I believe in real estate, 
and you see companies going bankrupt, you know, in a down cycle. And so I figured that you had to have income coming in no matter what when you're developing. I had no capital. The accessibility to capital, the government's programs allowed close to 100% financing, and it was complex. You know, I love the opportunity of building something. So I saw the opportunity in affordable housing where the competition wasn't that great and uh, would use that to build and learn how to be a developer of affordable housing. Uh So I did that for about eight eight years Uh from the time I started and we probably built over 5,000 units Uh in that eight year period Uh and started, you know, seeing where the opportunities were and developers would get their uh, subsidies or their grants you know, politically, they didn't know how to do it. So I kind of like buy their uh, projects from them mm-hmm. and execute them. And because life is all about execution. Right. And I always believe that because if you know how to execute, you, you can succeed. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and that's how I, that was really the background of how I built related. And, the, and that business became development finance, syndication, every different part of the stack of how to get affordable housing in that case. Right, and, we ma- and we managed it as well. And you managed it as well. Well, right. So that's, that's really what the foundation of this company is. Uh-huh. And it still is today. We have the largest portfolio of affordable housing in the country. We still build, finance, and manage it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's, I mean, it works great when you go to communities and people are always talking about affordable housing and they, they just know us for the, for the luxury stuff we do. And right. then all of a sudden we, we point out to them the amount of affordable housing we do and projects in those areas, it surprises a lot of community groups. How does the base of that work? And I think you haven't sold much of it or you haven't sold it for conversion. So how does that base affect the culture of the company that you have today? Well, I mean, the, the, the opportunities are great. We're buying other people's old portfolios, managing it, mm-hmm. you know, renovating it. And uh, I think people are really proud of what we're doing. And certainly today, it's called out a lot more because that's all people talk about is affordable housing. Right. And we never sold a unit and we buy other units. And uh, I think there's only one project that we've ever sold that we developed mm-hmm. in affordable housing. And we still... You know, this is 50 years later. So you're, I'm going to use the word steward. It's just interesting to think of a for-profit organization, clearly profit-oriented, you've done well, but to be a steward of that housing over that period of time is a meaningful achievement. Well, well, it's probably the, the biggest need of yeah. this country, and it's going to be the biggest need going forward. Yep. You know, as people's jobs, you know, what they can afford to pay for their housing and understanding it, understanding how to build it, how to finance it. Right. You know, it, it, it's, it was a great background. It's a great foundation for a company. And it's something, you know, that we work with local officials on. And, um, and I think that's really important because we understand the needs of, of a city. Mm-hmm. And today people are living in cities and what you need to do to go forward and it's got to be part of every project, just about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you guys, the, your level of expertise, understanding, I'm friends with Bill Woody on the West Coast, but I know your work nationally, and it's, it's really impressive. Yeah. And observation. I'm, and I'm thinking of the word competition, so it's going to lead up to the word competition. 
when I became a recruiter 25 years ago or whatever, we observed your company. And one of the things we observed in your company is you had the different divisions within affordable housing, each led by different people. And it felt from the outside like a competitive environment. And it felt like internal competition and action was what defined your company. I don't know if this is true or not. I mean, I never looked at it as internal competition. I mean, I always believed we wanted to hire, you know, the best and the brightest. Or I used to even say we wanted to hire um, poor, hungry-driven PhDs. Good move. Yeah. You know, people. And work it together as a team. Mm-hmm. To me, you can only build a company if you're working together as a team. Mm-hmm. You know, and everybody given the opportunity, not being micromanaged, but being the brightest guys around uh-huh. and knowing we don't want to be where everybody else is. We yeah. want to we want to live outside the box. Uh-huh. And I think uh, I think that's what we've been able to do. Uh-huh. I mean, as you get bigger and bigger, it's harder to do. Right. You know, as you as you diversify into more things in more cities, you know, geographically, um, the company's become a lot bigger. We got great, great people leaders. and we got great leadership. I want to pivot to that comment and the comment about great people who are hungry people, who are really strong and running hard, who are organized to work as a team, because you're the owner of a football team. <laughs> and, and at your level of ownership of a football team, you're bringing some of these lessons and some of those perspectives to that business, if that's a business. So just talk about kind of the parallels between how this works and how that works and where you get juice out of doing that work. Well, I mean, I bought a football team because I love the challenge and thought I'd built a company and I had my own ways of how I thought a company should run, operate Uh and work together as a team, Uh you know, and the type of people you want to get. Building a football team is a lot more difficult because there's so many rules and regulations. It's harder to build a winning football team because it's about people. Any organization is about people. Basically, I like to pride ourselves in getting good people, training them, and making sure that they do well and stay with us. Mm-hmm. And that's you know, how we've really grown the company. But in football, you know, there's so many rules and regulations who you can hire, what you can do, and that's why football is such a great sport because a team can be good one year, and two years later, they're playing in the Super Bowl. Right. You know, so. You can make that happen. Talk about yeah. your pleasure from that and your pleasure from this and how you, how you balance all of those. And, and we're going to start to wrap up. But. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I love sports and I love competition. Uh-huh. And so the challenge of that, you know, is really what drives me. I'm not really a hands-on. I mean, I talk quite a bit with the general manager, but. You know, I don't pick players. I don't tell them what to, who to play, what right. plays to run. But it's, it's, it's like people. you got to find the right people. Yeah. And that's what's harder than it is in business. Last question on leading voices is always advice for a young person entering, I won't say football, the real estate business. It's like any other business. Being hard work, trying to think outside the box, and persevere. I think in, in anything, it's the, it's the ability to persevere you know, through good times and bad and believe in yourself and to work hard. And it's the only way you do things. Yeah. Using your brain to solve problems, mm-hmm. not money. Mm-hmm. And too many people like to throw money to solve problems, but it's really the brains that solve the problems. And that's why you want the best and the brightest. Yeah. Thinking the word structure, you can structure into solutions. It's not Dutch. It's not just the dough. It's not the dough. Yeah. You know, you got to sell. People got to believe in you. Mm-hmm. 
you know, the ability to attract capital and people will, you know, to believe that you're going to give them the returns and, right. and you're honest and, you know, your word is good. Uh-huh. If there's anything we didn't discuss in this that you think our real estate audience should know about Stephen Ross that they don't. I mean, I'm 81, but I'm going strong and uh, I'm still to be heard from. Awful tough. <laughs> Keep it going. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.